Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on today's episode of the podcast, we are going to try to bring a bit of clarity to the murky world of service animals, emotional support animals, and comfort animals. What are they? What purpose do they serve? And how does the law, specifically the Americans with Disabilities Act, treat these animals in different spaces? So as we record this show, there was a recent incident in the news that's gone viral um, about an emotional support peacock that was declined boarding by an airline. Um, The incident has sparked a lot, and I mean a lot, of online debate about the role of animals, human-animal bond, and just what does the ADA cover. So I am really excited to do this show. The timing, I guess, could not have been better. Um, And so we'll try to tease out all of these issues today, and I'm delighted to welcome Scott Lisner, the Ohio State University's ADA coordinator, and 504 Compliance Officer. Welcome. Thank you. So so we'll try not to do too many bird puns today. (laughs) But uh, Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and your role at uh, OSU? Okay, so I've been at OSU for about 18 years in this role as their central uh, ADA compliance officer. I do disability policy and compliance and initiatives for the entire university. I work with the veterinary college. I happen to be on their diversity committee this year. Um, I work with our medical school. I work with uh, our all of our professional schools and health school programs, as well as our undergraduate institution. Um, uh, my background is actually originally in counseling uh, and cognitive psychology. Uh, Years ago, got into doing academic support services for students when the first group of students with disabilities uh, began arriving on our campuses because of the passage of Section 504 uh, of the Rehabilitation Act that gave colleges some obligations beginning back in 1977. um, And the Uh, what is now IDEA, which passed a couple of years before that and started uh, started providing special education services in K through 12. That first batch of students coming to college uh, fell into kind of two categories, uh, students with uh, sensory disabilities, blind, deaf, or wheelchair users uh, were the obvious ones, but a fairly small statistical group. Uh, And then the larger statistical group was students with learning disabilities. So the college I was working in at the time said, oh, look, they're mostly with learning disabilities and he does tutoring. (laughs) Maybe he should be responsible. (laughs) So I got into working with students uh, with disabilities that way, kind of purely by happenstance. Uh, It was not an uncomfortable place for me. Uh, And when I switched institutions, I became more, had a larger share of that responsibility. Uh, And when I began the job previous to this one in Virginia, um, the ADA was passing. Um, We needed to update our transition plan and how we were gonna approach the ADA from the plan we had been obligated to do under 504 some years earlier. Uh, And I went to my new vice president of business and legislative affairs and said, so I'm serving students. Uh, I should probably be working with your uh, 504 compliance officer who would be your new ADA coordinator. And he pulled a big thick folder out of his cabinet, um, which I now know to be a minor miracle. uh, (laughs) That was his 1976 transition plan. Uh, And he got a very sheepish look on his face uh, and said, well, the person who was doing this died about four years ago. 
you're the first person to make me take this out of my file cabinet. Congratulations. You are our new uh, 504 <laughs> compliance officer. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> That was roughly 30 years ago, <laughs> just shy of 30 years ago. So I've been in this role one way or another uh, for a significant amount of time. I do a bit of teaching at our law school and for our disability studies program and for our College of Architecture. Uh, I'm a past president of the Association of Higher Education and Disability. That's the professional association that the uh, disability resource office staff on your campus uh, probably belong to. Uh, uh -huh. And I'm a past president and currently their public policy chair. Uh, so that's, wow. that's probably enough. <laughs> busy, busy, busy. So, so as a side note for uh, any young professionals out there who um, think that their career is going to take a straight linear line from <laughs> From graduation to retirement. That's typically not how it works. <laughs> so, uh, well, welcome to the show. Why don't we dive right on in? Um, so what are, legally, what are the different kinds of service kind of help animals? Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to start by saying there's a lot of variation in language out there in the universe. Okay. Some of that is in the regulations and the various laws, but a lot of that is mostly just how we all choose to use language, and, mm. and, and no one has agreed on a really solid taxonomy yet. But I'm going to give you mine. Okay. <laughs> and I'll try to give you what the substitutes are. So broadly, there are assistance animals, animals that assist somebody with a disability. Uh, the Fair Housing Act uses that phrase specifically the ADA does not. Um, uh, 504 does not. Um, so it's a, a broad statement. The um, FAA and the Air Carriers Act uses that phrase. And the Peacock story, just as a frame of reference, uh, the right potentially for the Peacock and the pop process by which the Peacock was denied access to board the plane we're all under the Air Carrier Act rules. That okay. was not under the ADA. That was under regulations in the Air Carriers Act. Uh, so that's not one the average veterinary college needs to worry too much about <laughs> since, since your college doesn't fly. Sure. Uh, so, so you're not covered by the Air Carriers Act. But assistance animals are the broad term. Within that, uh, sometimes the phrase support animals is used broadly to cover all animals that provide support. Uh, within that, you might divide the world into three groups for me, broadly. Okay. Uh, so one is service animals. A service animal is defined by the Americans with Disabilities Act, by the ADA. Okay. A service animal is a dog that has been trained to perform a behavior on cue that mitigates the impact of a disability. Okay. And occasionally you can use a miniature horse as a substitute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, so the basic rule on a service animal is it's been trained. There's no okay. requirement for what that training looks like, but it has to perform a task on cue that's active mm -hmm. and that potentially would mitigate the impact of a disability or at least partially do so. Okay. Right. All right. Uh, um, uh, what justice did was recognize that um, some denominations within Islam uh, consider a dog to be unclean based on a passage in the Quran. Right. Uh, and will not share space with a dog. Um, uh, and they couldn't leave it at a service animal is only a dog. Uh, without potentially butting up against freedom of religion. Sure. Uh, and so they made an exception to say sometimes a miniature horse um, um, as an exception to it being a dog. Uh, miniature horses are not much bigger than uh, German shepherds. Uh, I, much to my surprise, they can be housebroken. 
Um, and there are about 25 in use in the country that I can, I can identify and only one that's ever been on a college campus that I know of. Uh, so I don't think you're going to see a lot of miniature horses, but if somebody has a miniature horse in harness, so to speak, you might, you, you have to ask the question. Okay. And so if a dog walks in your door, the questions the Department of Justice allows you to ask because you are a, a place of public accommodation, whether you're a public college or a private college, you would fit that definition. Student walks in the door with a dog. Uh, I guess there's actually an extra question you might ask if it's over at the clinic. Is that a patient? Uh, right. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> but, but under the assumption it's not your clinic space, you can ask, is that a service animal for a disability? Okay. That's a yes, no question. That's not a what animal, what disability do you have? But you okay. are allowed to ask that. And you are allowed to ask if it's not obvious, what service does it perform? And when you hear that service, it should be something that would happen to a cue that's active that, and a behavior that's identifiable that might reasonably to a, a, a reasonable person um, be thought of as something that would reduce the impact of the disability. Uh, we'll come back to that those questions in that definition sure. as we move through the list of, of other animals. Then there are emotional support animals. Um, uh, sometimes called comfort animals. I would prefer to call them emotional support animals. Those are animals that it is the ongoing relationship for all of your faculty that do human bond research. This is kind of falling in your direction a little sure. bit. Um, um, it's the ongoing passive relationship with the animal that helps to mitigate symptoms, control symptoms, reduce the impact of the disability. So it's not something the dog does that is any different from what a pet might do. Mm -hmm. It is the ongoing relationship with the dog. An emotional support animal is not got the, the pass that a service animal has. A service animal is allowed to pretty much go anywhere the person can go. Uh, if you have to put on protective gear to walk in that room, then that's a room that you can likely restrict a service animal from going into. If okay. it's a sterile environment, if you don't let anybody in the door without goggles and boots, the dog can be kept outside unless it's wearing goggles and boots. Okay. Uh, and there are goggles for dogs. Yeah. And there are boots yeah. for dogs. Yeah. <laughs> so we have had a dog in our chemistry lab. Um, because the dog could meet the protective clothing requirement of clothes, shoes, and goggles that everyone who walked in the door had to meet, right? Um, so an emotional support animal is covered not by the ADA. Okay. The ADA only recognizes service animals. But an emotional support animal is covered, as I said, by the FAA, and the Air Carriers Act, not a big concern here. It's covered by HUD okay. under the Fair Housing Act, and we might have to reasonably permit an emotional support animal into our residence hall space. Okay. So they get on campus. Okay. Um, that process allows someone on your campus, based on your broader policies around disability and accommodation, to say, I want some documentation about your disability and your need for an emotional support. HUD, the Department of Transportation and the FAA under the Air Carriers Act, uh, don't recognize species limits. They don't say an emotional support animal is a dog and only a dog except for. They are broad. They do not recognize okay. a particular species and will come back to how one might choose what's a reasonable species and not to let in the door in a, in a couple of moments. But, but that would be uh, under those laws. After that, uh, what might be generally referred to as pets, uh, maybe a companion animal, maybe a comfort animal at some level, 
but something that is not either a documented need for your disability or service animal uh, is kind of everybody else. Uh, in okay. your world, those might be patients, they might be research subjects, or they might be somebody's pets. Sure. Um, so to be clear, I guess what I'm hearing you say, though, that <clears throat> so the function that emotional support animals serve is to mitigate symptoms of a disability, but they're not covered specifically under ADA. So does that mean then they, other than those, than, than housing and FAA and, and those types of scenarios, then there's, there's greater restriction on where they can go? There is greater restriction on where they can go. And there is a, uh, a process you can put in place uh, when it comes to emotional support animals, that's uh, more directive than the process for service animals. For service animals. Okay. All uh, right. So I'm going to go back to the, the student walks in the door with a, with a dog. Let's, let's keep it as okay. a dog for the moment and keep <laughs> life simple. Um, and, and you say, is that a service animal for a disability? Uh, and, and they say yes, because there's a lot of confusion out there. They're not necessarily trying to manipulate you okay. uh, and they say and you ask what service does it perform and the student says um, it helps me control my anxiety maybe the student volunteers i have ptsd and it helps me control my anxiety okay. um, controlling your anxiety isn't a behavior mm -hmm. so you can ask that's good how does it control your anxiety? What about the animal helps you to control your anxiety? There's a number of ways you could ask that question, but since they haven't described the behavior that would mitigate a disability, just an outcome, right. you, can, you can ask. Now, if they say, it senses my muscle tone, posture, and breathing rate, and when I ratchet up, with an episode, it senses that and pause at my leg to get my attention and to anchor me to the here and now. Okay. There's That's an action service. there that happens on cue, right. right? That's a behavior happening on cue. So it's a service animal. Uh, it happens to be serving a disability that's a psychiatric disability mm -hmm. or a mental health disability, but it's, it's still a service animal. If they say, when I get anxious, I look down in its big brown eyes and at its smiling face and I pick it up and it licks me and I feel all so much better. It might be an emotional support animal or it might be a pet, but that does not describe a service. Right. So at that point, you could say, it does not sound like a service animal. It sounds like an emotional support animal, maybe, or pet or mm -hmm. something else and refer them into your reasonable accommodation process. Okay. Now, I don't want to assume every college does it a little bit differently. Sure. If you were at our veterinary school, you would go to one of our contacts within the veterinary school, who's kind of the point person for our disability services offices over there. It's a member of their staff. Uh, and he would work with our disability services office to get documentation that said, you did indeed have a disability. This was indeed a reasonable accommodation to have the dog and understand what the need for the dog was. Mm -hmm. Under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, rather than the ADA, which also co which covers every institution that receives any federal dollars on their campus. So that okay. would be all of you. Everybody. <laughs> right. Um, it is silent on animals. Hmm. There is a passing statement in the regulation guidance about allowing a guide dog as an example of one type of accommodation, but it doesn't have the kind of language that the ADA has that limits it only to service animals, nor does it have the kind of language that the Fair Housing Act has that broadens it. Uh, so it is silent, and the Department of Education has recognized that an emotional support animal in various locations not covered by HUD on your campus, not okay. covered by the Fair Housing Act, might be a reasonable accommodation. 
okay. that, that your institution should engage its accommodation process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so when we do that, we ask about what is it the dog does and how is it that it helps the individual manage its symptoms. That's a pretty reasonable level of information for our disability services office to ask. I wouldn't want our average faculty member engaging in that conversation. Okay, <laughs> noted. So, so we're really good about referring them to sure. the right Refer. path. Now, now you wanna look at what the right path is at your institution. As the compliance guy, uh, my big concern is if it's not funneled through our disability services office or being done in collaboration with them, uh, or my office, if it's if it's a, an appropriate issue, uh, then I've got at OSU five thousand decision makers uh, about accommodations being reasonable, and that's <laughs> a, a short path to a complaint. Right? Sure, sure. You can't be consistent <laughs> if five thousand individuals are making those. Right, right. So we pass right. them there and we ask those questions. I think it is a pretty high hurdle to say, I need this animal with me while I'm in class. The mm -hmm. level of need that has to be documented there is a pretty high level of need when the presumption for an emotional support animal is it is the ongoing interdependence with the animal, the ongoing interactions that perform kind of a prophylactic palliative uh -huh. impact on managing your symptoms of your disability. So mm -hmm. typically we might say, yes, you can have it in the residence hall where you live is different when where you spend a little bit of the day. Mm -hmm. Of course, the mm -hmm. students at our veterinary college spend some very long days at the veterinary college, sure. and they might try to present an argument for why they would need the animal in class. In that um, and, and we would go through a decision-making process there and say, do, do, does it meet the threshold of a need? Is there an alternative effective accommodation? Mm, is mm -hmm. also something we get to ask. So we have a number of students who have made that request and um, we will recognize that testing is a particularly high stress situation mm -hmm. uh, and have offered those students when possible a schedule that allows breaks in the day so they can visit their animal uh, and, and identify testing in a reduced distraction individual testing room, which sure. we'll do for other disabilities. And so you can have the dog with you during testing. Will that satisfy your needs? Mm -hmm. And that's a way okay. of kind of minimizing the number of dogs in the classroom. Right, as well, I mean, the disruption to other students as well. Well, so, so. the disruption to other students is round two. Yeah. Uh, you, I'm speaking to an audience of veterinary professionals <laughs> I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to be transparent <laughs> about it in case I'm wrong. We don't all assume dogs are bad, evil, and misbehave. No. You can't make that assumption about a dog that is an approved accommodation or a service animal any more than you should make it about the student who walks in the door. Right. Based on some overt aspect of the student race. Right. right. They're in a wheelchair, whatever. We shouldn't make broad assumptions based on that. The ADA for service animals, and certainly when we're in the world of emotional support animals, does not limit it to breed or size. But it does say it has to be in control. Right. So in so control. Do you, so ahead. do you require, so, so do you, in approving these animals, I mean, I think that the the general kind of a s understanding of what we would consider, I guess, a traditional service animal, which is, you know, <laughs> most of the time, like most folks see a lab um, yeah. or a uh, German shepherd or, or something like that. Right. Um, but for emotional support animals where um, it seems things are um, a bit grayer then um, as a part of that kind of um, figuring out what those accommodations will be. Is there a requirement um, or, or part of the process that kind of does a behavioral assessment? So we can set a reasonable expectation of controlled behavior, but we have to base it on what we're seeing. Even a okay. service animal, while it, quote, has to be trained, right. there's no certification. 
There's no registration. There's no licensing of service animals that is recognized uh, by the law. Um, there are lots of companies online that I can spend $89.99, send them a picture and a description, and they will send me a service animal registration card. If I read the fine print, it says on the card, this is based on information provided to me, to us, that we have not validated. Right. So basically, if you bring your animal and it keeps it together for the for the hour of long meeting. So if you were in our disability services office requesting this and had the dog with you, they would observe the behavior. They would ask some questions about the behavior. Since on our campus, we require that all enrolled students have a clean bill of health. Sure we can require that the animal have a clean bill of health. So we ask for rabies certification, um, you know, and those kinds of things. Uh, if it is, that's one of the ways we can limit uh, the non-domestic animals that might be brought as emotional support animals. So there's our entree <laughs> to the peacock story. To the peacock. <laughs> that was a nice soft... <laughs> Soft lob there. So, so what kinds of animals? Um, I mean, I'm gonna make my own big assumption here that that dogs, um, particularly, I guess for for our students, are often um, the ones that are are being um, brought. But I also know vet students um, well enough to know that there's a menagerie of of critters sometimes <laughs> lurking about. So, what have you seen, and 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 how do those and how do how do folks and not just students, but but folks in general trying to demonstrate again that that these animals are that there's a behavior, <laughs> you know, that that there's that they're helpful. All right. So so I'm going to. I'm going to start with kind of how it works under HUD a little bit, OK, uh, because it's good guidance for how to deal with emotional support animals under 504 since. Section 504 doesn't have any specifics to it. Mm. Relying on HUD's guidance is a pretty safe way to say, I've gone to a reliable source to figure out my, my process. Right. So HUD doesn't, HUD divides animals into two broad groups. There are service animals. HUD would encourage you to start with the two service animal questions. Mm -hmm. If it's a dog and it answers those questions that there's acute behavior, that makes sense, then it's a service animal. Okay. For HUD, if it's not a dog, but it does a behavior odd cue that might mitigate the disability, that it's still an assistance animal. Okay. So, for instance, when they redid the ADA regulations back in 2010, they rewrote the pieces on service animals. That's where they restricted it to dogs and occasionally a miniature horse. And they explicitly eliminated monkeys, for instance. Okay. Uh, capuchin monkeys are trained to work with people who are quadriplegic, have very limited use of their arms, limited or no use of their legs. They can be incredibly helpful around the house. But okay. At the end of the day, a monkey is not a domestic animal, it is a wild animal that may or may not be effectively trained, but can never be entirely relied on to act like a domestic animal. Right. Uh, and carries a very large potential for zoonotic disease transfer as a primate. And based on CDC guidance and the fact that monkeys, even when trained, aren't always consistent behaviorally. Uh, they eliminated monkeys along with other animals when they wrote the ADA. Okay. Uh, but they haven't done that for HUD. So I might legitimately ask for a monkey in my residence um, because it would, and it, it can do a task. Um, hmm. Gray African parrots are highly trainable and they live a long time. Yeah. As birds go, they're very bright. Um, and I have had a request for a gray African parrot that um, would um, um, chat and prompt a student to eat who had an eating disorder. And so she ate in her room 
Okay. Uh, thankfully, because great African parents don't really belong in the dining hall. <laughs> um, so, you know, taking it out of the okay. for resident, it has to be under control. So that means mm-hmm. on a leash, a harness, in a carrier or a cage, or if the service it performs requires that it not be leashed. So if it's a, a quadriplegic with a maybe a small dog that does fetch and carry, that does mm-hmm. just picks things up. Uh, if it's on a leash, it can't really do its job, right? Right. But it has to be within two to three feet and responsive to voice commands. Okay. Housebroken is on that list of under control. You can't really housebreak a parent, as far as I know, <laughs> right? So, um, that being the case, the parent didn't travel, uh, gotcha. but she presented documentation. The next question was, can the parent present a clean bill of health? Now, I have to say, I didn't do the first round approval on the parent. Um, and I probably would have said the vet's information was not adequate to our purpose. Mm. The vet said the parent was healthy. My question okay. is, is it healthy and does it pose a minimal risk of zoonotic disease transfer? Gotcha. Uh, and if there is any... Uh, protocols that would reduce that risk that the student should employ, what are those? Mm-hmm. That's the information I asked the student to get from the vet caring for the animal. It's really hard to get that ad- that information on exotic animals. Okay, sure, sure. Right? I mean, maybe within your veterinary colleges, you have folks who would do it, but the average vet is not likely, doesn't typically fill that out right. for hedgehogs and chinchillas and boa constrictors and tarantulas right right uh, which are all on the list of things i've seen as as um potential emotional sport animals right. and for that matter for the peacock if if i were uh having someone request the peacock on on our campus <laughs> it was denied because there are weight and size and toilet training uh, uh you know yeah, house broken uh, requirements under the regulations and under United Airlines policies. And the, it, they didn't question whether or not it was an emotional support animal. They said it didn't matter. It didn't qualify. Right. Right. Uh, right. Uh, so you raise a really interesting point, though, an important point for um, the veterinary community in, in general. And that really is that if, um, you know, the question about whether or not this animal can access certain spaces, what is that risk? It, is, it isn't just, is it healthy? Which I think a lot of folks can certainly determine, right? Yeah. A lot of professionals can determine that piece, but really kind of assessing the risk um, yeah. for and, transmissible and- zoonotic diseases. And that that is really the crux of, um, you know, the, the one of those central questions around access. Right. And particularly in, when it's a request that relates to housing mm-hmm. in a college residential environment. Sure. So if if I'm not supposed to, if, if there's a risk of salmonella from the feces from a hedgehog or a bearded dragon, um, mm-hmm. and I'm not supposed to clean the cage in a sink that's typically used for bathing, cleaning, uh, or food preparation, and right. I live in a residence hall. How does that work? For you? How does that work? Well, and I imagine. <laughs> right. I mean, some of those same 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 issues for us in a in a teaching facility, particularly in clinics, are the same issues, right? Um, well, not necessarily, you know, whether or not you make ramen in the sink, <laughs> <laughs> but really that there are. Um, I mean, you know, for for our purposes um, in in teaching facilities, it's not just an issue of whether or not that animal is um, is a risk, but but you know questions are for the owners um, who are using these animals, is that animal at risk being in a clinical facility that is designed to treat sick animals? So that's 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 an issue, but <laughs> not to offend any of the people online, my understanding of the legal status of a dog is it's chattel. It's property. Mm. And it's not your property. 
Mm. And whether or not I want to risk damage to my dog or my computer is kind of not your business, but mine. Right. Risk to others right. is your business. Right, right, is, sure. Does the dog pose a risk to other patients that it might be exposed to in a clinical setting? Sure. That's probably a yes. Sure. Uh, I don't see bringing an animal into an area where you are doing live clinical exams. I think there's a reasonable argument about um, disease transfer, cleanliness, et cetera, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that you might, you might undertake. Uh, of course, if that clinical exam is done in a non-sterile environment uh, next to five other animals, one of which is a pet dog that happens to be on the property, that might be a hard argument to make that, sure. that a, a well-cared-for dog presents a greater risk, risk. Uh, than, than, you know, if I've got a large animal program and I'm out on the farm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the question is, can the dog behave itself out on the farm? Right? Right. Can, it, can it be maintained in control, not distress the other animals, uh, as opposed to that being risk transfer? Labs generally, I think, you know, require a pretty high hurdle to bring the dog in, but yeah. many of our labs are not sterile labs. Um, and mm -hmm. certainly our didactic classes where we're lecturing and showing slides and sure. talking, uh, we've got no basis for saying there's a higher risk there than in the art history class down the hall uh, or across campus. And so we would let dogs, uh, clearly dogs, if they're approved, uh, to have access if they're a service animal, would easily go in. Most exotics, you're going to have limits in terms of toilet training. Sure. You're going to have limits in terms of control that will, and you'll have, you know, a reasonable done in conjunction with your disability services, disability resource office, perhaps a really good kind of direct threat analysis to others. Mm -hmm. And in your case, others would include your patients in your clinics, right. uh, not necessarily in the rest of your spaces, but certainly right. in your clinics. Uh, I would really encourage you, if you haven't, uh, to reach out to your disability services office, who has, uh, you know, I would be willing to bet most of next week's paycheck uh, would dearly love to legitimately find ways to control and limit the number of animals. <laughs> the field of the, you know, at the head conferences, they are as concerned as anyone with the, you know, range of questionable documentation mm -hmm. and the increase mm -hmm. in use of animals on campus and the apparent increase in use of less than legitimate. Okay. animals on campus right. i i want to be real clear though there are some real legitimate uses, absolutely uh beyond the traditional service dog uh and we need to take those into account but i'm also a realist and i've gotten documentation that i know came from dogter.com uh d-o-g-k-t-o-r 89.99 you get yeah the, the limited access package uh, and they approve your emotional support. Well, yeah. I mean, I was really surprised that there's, you know, and kind of um, doing some of the background for um, this, this show kind of that there isn't a kind of national group that really just kind of oversees some of this stuff or, or, you know, advocates for, I mean, there's just lots and lots of groups and yeah, you pay your money and you go on Amazon, you get a vest and, Right. No. So, so you, you can ask the questions. My guidance for you as faculty, you know, is to work closely where you can kind of refer it up the ladder when you have questions and mm -hmm. not, not take on all of the decision making and all of the risk uh, of making a, a, a bad decision or a, right. one that doesn't quite follow a good process by collaborating and reaching out to your disability services office. I also encourage you to look really carefully. We anchor our treatment and our interactions with requests for animals and animals and our expectations to our codes of conduct on campus. Mm. We will not let a student howl all night, at least not if somebody complains, in the <laughs> residence hall or in our classes. 
And so we won't let a dog do those things. Do that either. Right? We will not let a student just go to the bathroom anywhere they want and walk away. Maybe on a football Saturday, but typically no. <laughs> Uh, we won't let a dog do that. They have to clean right. up after the dog. Right. Respect areas that we've designated as right. toileting areas or non-toileting areas. Sure. And we won't let a student walk across our campus and randomly run up to people and lick them. <laughs> so we Good will policy. not let dogs do that. <laughs> That's a different show. <laughs> so, and no, dogs are not covered by Title IX. Uh, but, that's a different show that's a different that's show all together but but my point is we use our code of conduct as an anchor for expectations for the dog sure. and and if somebody had an animal with them in class and the animal gave a little yelp whimpered made some distracting noise um i might say to the student G student, you need to keep your animal quiet so it doesn't disturb class. Because if a student was at yeah. that level disruptive, I wouldn't kick them out of the building. Right. Right. If they can't keep it under control and it repeats, at some point you can say, you know, you've been warned, told you a second time, really, please don't bring the dog back until you have evidence that the dog will not be disruptive in right. class. Right. Uh, and then your, you can work with your disability services office and your conduct office over what that evidence might be. Because it's the student's conduct you're controlling, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because they're responsible for the dog. For we the, treat them the as, as a right. team, as one. Right, right. right. Um, so so as we're, we're drawing to a close here, I want to make sure that folks kind of have some clarity around um, the, the questions that you know, if you have what you believe is a service or assistance animal, you use that term, um, those first questions are, is this a service animal? Mm -hmm. And then what is what specifically does it do on cue? What's the behavior? What service does it perform? Right. And then <laughs> then 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 that's that's the break point. Right. Then you get an answer that you can say sounds like a behavior on cue mm -hmm. that might mitigate the impact of a disability, might reduce right. the impact of a disability. Or it sounds like, you know, it's more the relationship with the dog or it's not clear. And then you can ask some follow-up questions right. based on that. Right. I often tell our faculty member, if the space is a space that we would let a service animal in the door, if we knew it was a service animal, mm -hmm. And the animal, particularly if it's a dog, is well-behaved and under control. That it's not especially problematic for the faculty member to say, I'm going to give, I'm not sure it's a service animal. I'm going to give you provisional permission. I'm going to give you permission for today, as long as the animal is under control and not disruptive. For you to keep the animal in class okay and then we're going to go over to our disability services right. office and let them figure out or our the ada details. coordinator or our point person in the vet school whoever it is on your campus and walk through the the, the larger process the and if documentation is needed get documentation before the dog can come back gotcha all uh, right and that would be a pretty reasonable approach sure. I, I do want to really quickly hit Two, yeah. two, two more possibilities. So state law is highly variable. Before you go, here's our rules, you need to check with state law. Okay. So in Ohio, service animals in training within some boundaries, mm -hmm. I won't bore you with our law, uh, are covered and okay. have access. So you need to recognize state law might be different and might add other animals your list mix okay uh you know other roles of animals mm -hmm. to the list uh some state laws also recognize a broader range of animals right than the ada does so you got to take that into account the ada will always defer to a law that gives wider access than it requires okay and it will always trump a law that gives less access than it requires <laughs> that's built into the regulations that's built sure. into the statute. Uh, 
So the two other animals I want to just mention brief, briefly are, quote, therapy dogs. They're trained. Ah. There are training organizations that certify them. That's not a legal certification. That's their certification. Their certifications usually require that you carry liability insurance either through the organization or independently. And those are the kinds of dogs people bring to visit patients in the hospital, okay. in retirement homes. We might have one visit the library during final exams mm -hmm. so students can de-stress with the dog because we all know pets are good for us. Right. right. And that's a healthy interaction. Uh, so, and, and then there are people raising service animals and in some states mm -hmm. they have rights for a service animal in training. So one strategy you might consider is reaching out to the local organizations that do certified visiting therapy animals uh, and organizing some programming occasionally on, on site to make students less likely to want to bring their own dogs. Mm, you might yeah. even consider whether the college, as the veterinary college, wants to designate and train one as, I don't know, a class project oh. and provide that service to the library, to mm -hmm. people who request it across campus, that instead of it being, you know, somebody's going to have to ultimately be responsible right. for, as the keeper of the dog, so to speak, but, but you could work with a team of students and make it a project. Similarly, you could do that to raise a dog uh, or to, you know, to do the socialization of a dog mm -hmm. that's being trained as a service animal, the kind of the middle stage. There's puppy raising, right. there's getting it out and about and socialized in a wide range of environments. Mm -hmm. College campus is the definition of a wide range of environments. <laughs> right? So you could, as a again, as a class project, perhaps, mm -hmm. uh, or a student organization project, socialize a service animal. Okay. Uh, those are animals you place all the limits on you want to. Uh, right. They might have a positive impact on reducing the number of requests for animals in other in, in this context. That those are great ideas. Thank you very much, Scott. So, uh, any final parting words? So, I was going to put together a list of some resources that would great. give people a link to the laws and the regulations. And, and maybe a quick handout on kind of the, the chaotic world of what animal is what um, uh, that I thought would be helpful to folks that you could post online. Absolutely. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Um, those types of resources are always necessary and super helpful. Wonderful. Thanks well, thank you. Me. And if I can be of help again, give me a holler. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, um, Scott Listener from uh, The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. We really appreciate um, your taking this hour and spending some time talking about uh, service animals, assistance animals. Is that the broader kind of overarching? Yeah. So I, I <laughs> just pick one. <laughs> broad, I think assistance animals covers covers every animal being used to provide assistance for a disability, in my mind, at least. Gotcha. So I think that's a good, really broad term. term. Uh, and then, you know, when you start talking specifics, I think it's always good to be clear. We're talking about a service animal and a place that is open to the public to walk in the door. Educational settings count for that. We're covered by that. Um, um, so that's kind of the ADA and 504. Right. Uh, versus perhaps HUD and the Fair Housing Act or transportation FAA and all of that, all those other places. All right. Well, we will continue watching um, and uh, waiting. We know that the, the air carriers are, are um, increasingly putting some restrictions or at least publicly kind of putting some restrictions um, on um, the, the, the boarding, <laughs> the access well, to boarding. And, and they've always had, some rules, and I'm the first to admit that some of the airlines have been over generous for whatever reason mm -hmm. in the range of things they've said yes to in the past. Uh, Delta has recently done a right. new set of rules that are uh, have some restrictions in them that are a bit problematic in my mind uh, because I don't think they accomplish the task at hand. Mm. Uh, so 
they've asked for uh, a, a clean bill of health from the vet, which, which is, gets to that question. This it question gets to some earlier. of those questions. <laughs> uh, but they've also set a policy about how you upload that and get that to them. Um, uh, and so if I'm a guide dog user because I'm blind and I use adaptive technology on my computer, uh, between my vet and Delta Airlines, uh, uploading mm. um, documentation uh, within 48 hours of my flight might be uh, a little bit of a challenge. Uh, you know, if, if Delta hasn't done a really good job with their website, might be a problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? right. And because they can't do it well, and it's hard to do, to, to do that document upload. Or let me rephrase that. It's not really hard to make that accessible. It's just unusual for companies to do so. To do so. <laughs> right. Uncommon, right. Not, right. not all that difficult. It's just right. Uncommon. It's uncommon. Well, we will be doing a follow-up show um, later this spring um, with an animal behavioralist kind of talking about assistance animals and um, and this issue of under control, air quote, and what does that mean and what kinds of behaviors um, does that, what does that look like, right, um, in different settings. So um, folks, be sure to, to check out um, that show that we'll be doing later this spring. And so with that, I will um, bring this show to a close. Thank you so much again, Scott. Um, don't worry, we will probably call you again <laughs> on other ADA and 504 related issues um, as our new resident <laughs> expert. Well, thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate uh, your taking the time to kind of help bring a little bit of clarity to um, this issue of assistance animals. So with that, we will wrap this episode. Um, be sure to like our Facebook page, Diversity and Inclusion on air at AAVMC on Facebook. Um, if you have questions about our show, please do please do not hesitate to uh, drop me an email at diversitymatters at aavmc.org and subscribe on SoundCloud, your favorite uh, iTunes app, Stitcher, all of those uh, podcast apps. Be sure to check out back episodes and and uh, subscribe so that you get the new content as it comes out. So with that, thank you again, Scott. We really appreciate you joining us. And uh, we will say goodbye.